Hear ye, now is the time to hear God's own word. Sit ye up straight. Let not thine attention waver one whit from these words of holy writ. Be ye warned, God's word is a winnowing fork, <clears throat> separating the wheat from the chaff. The scripture reading today is found from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And so it was, he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the middles of Samaria and Galilee. And he, as, he, as he entered into a certain town, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood far off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they, as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice praised God and fell down on his face at his feet and gave him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Are there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There is none found that returned to give God praise, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith has saved thee. Hear ye, now is the time to hear for the benefit of the earthly life and eternal soul. Brother Jonathan, expound upon and exposit for thine edification the meaning of these words of Holy Writ. Good Puritan fashion. Today I decided to see if I could preach a proper sermon, a sermon of the length that would make our ancestors proud. (laughs) If only we had old-style pews without cushions and backs to help keep you awake. But don't fear, that's why we have Brother Sander and his stick to prod you, lest you fall asleep and miss a word from the sermon. Don't test him. I know he's up to his task. Now I take as my text this morning the 17th verse of the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Please pray with me. Holy God, on this day when we, when we remember our ancestors in the faith, may we honor their memory by embracing what was best in their lives. And through these words, may we be filled with true thanksgiving. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving week is upon us. The holiday season has officially begun, although if you go by the decorations and stores, Christmas began three weeks ago. But don't be fooled by those decorations. This is Thanksgiving. Menus have been carefully planned and shopping lists made. That recipe for your favorite pie on that yellowed three and a half by five index card you dug out of your grandmother's Fanny Farmer cookbook 
And if you don't make the pie in just that way, you know you'll hear about it from family. The flavors of this holiday are as distinct as any other. You'll gather around your table on Thursday and perhaps look longingly at the kids' table not far away and recall those Thanksgivings past when you sat next to your cousin who you don't see anymore because he lives too far away. And who can forget the ritual, the annual ritual, of confronting strange old relatives with their awkward greetings that you only see once a year? Do you carve your turkey at the table? Do you prefer jellied cranberry that comes in a can? Or the freshly made variety that still has those discreet tart berries that tend to fall off the white meat just as it approaches your mouth? My father used to drench his whole plate in gravy. I mean everything, smothered in that delicious, savory fat. Thanksgiving, the one day of the year when the word calorie is meaningless. Are you the type of person who has a small slice of each pie? Or do you have one favorite that you stuff into your mouth, even though you've long, sought, long since stopped being hungry? Thanksgiving is a great cultural moment in our society. As steeped in tradition as any other, it is the quintessential American holiday, and yet one that is so universal that new Americans have adopted it, generation after generation. And it is a holiday with a history, a history that is forever tied up with the pilgrims and the congregational churches of New England. Our ancestors in the faith started this holiday, not just with the first Thanksgiving in 1621 in Plymouth, but with the ongoing tradition of marking that heritage. Thanksgiving, as we celebrate it today, spread from New England as Congregationalists moved and settled around the country. The holiday eventually became a national holiday in the depths of the American Civil War. Thanksgiving is a chance for us Congregationalists to unabashedly celebrate our heritage. And you also get to get dressed up in funny costumes. And we have a proud history we have been leaders in education, passing the first public education act in the world and founding some of the great institutions of higher learning. We've been on the leading edge of theological investigation. More than any other group, the Congregationalists were responsible for the American Revolution. Our nation's democracy and democratic tendencies are tied up with congregational governance and polity. We helped lead the abolition movement, the social gospel movement. We have fought for civil rights for all citizens. We prize the life of the mind as well as the life of the heart. Like all groups, we have our flaws. There's no doubt about that. But on a day like today, we can celebrate the good things in our tradition, tall hats and brass buckles included. But I have to say, it's odd that our Thanksgiving holiday traces its roots back to that first Thanksgiving in 1621. Because you see, it wasn't a Thanksgiving, at least not in the Puritan and Pilgrim sense of the word. I know that comes as a shock to some of you, so hold on to your bonnets. But what the Pilgrims celebrated that fall in 1621 was a harvest home celebration of the type that was celebrated back in Old England. It was a time for a joyful feast that marked the conclusion of the harvest. The crops are all brought in from the fields, so let's party. You know, harvest home, what the Pilgrims celebrated. Thanksgiving for the pilgrims and Puritans was different. A day of Thanksgiving was a communal religious holiday. You have in your order of service the only record of what we call the first Thanksgiving. Nowhere in that record is there mention of a religious observance. 
The Puritans and pilgrims called days of thanksgiving to mark great and unexpected events of divine grace. We don't celebrate days of thanksgiving like our ancestors. Unless, of course, you count the celebration after the Astros won the World Series. That's the closest thing we have, where this, uh, where the civil authorities closed down the schools. HISD was given a time off, was given a day off, and we had a big celebratory parade. But of course, it wasn't particularly religious, unless you count sports as a religion. I don't really want to go there right just now. <clears throat> and you know, there's a reason why we don't celebrate days of Thanksgiving like the Congregationalists of old. You see, P- Puritan and Pilgrim Thanksgivings were theologically grounded. They believed that God dealt with them as a body, a commonwealth. The whole community was rewarded or punished collectively based on the inscrutable will of God. They called days of fasting and penitence and days of thanksgiving where the whole community fasted and gave thanks together with with specific events in mind. This frame of mind is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and how God dealt with the people of Israel, things that were very important to our Puritan and Pilgrim ancestors. But of course, our theology is not their theology. We don't believe that God deals with us communally. We focus on the individual. Individuals give thanks. Individuals seek penitence and forgiveness, not the whole community. Our thanksgivings are different than those of the Puritans and Pilgrims, which is significant because it affects how we see gratitude and what we do about it. Our text for today, from Luke 17, is a great example of individual, not communal, thanksgiving. And therefore, it's far more relevant for how we give thanks than a similar passage from the Old Testament, which the Puritans and Pilgrims might have used. We meet Jesus and his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. Along the way, they come across ten lepers. Leprosy was a horrible disease that ate away at your skin left white patches on your body, which in extreme cases led to burning on your skin. Lepers could have open blisters on their hands and feet, which were often wrapped in rags. It deformed parts of the body with bulbous protrusions. Lepers often lost their eyebrows, and the disease affected their eyes, leaving lepers highly sensitive to light or even blind. The ancient world knew that this disease could be spread through touch, so lepers were quarantined from society. You caught leprosy, you would never again be able to hug your loved ones. You were condemned to live with other lepers in a colony, dependent on the mercy of your loved ones and others for food and sustenance. You were the ultimate outcast of society, a plague on the general population. See the scene in your head. These lepers heard stories of Jesus, the great healer, who saved people from demons and disease. Rumors went ahead before him, alerting people that he was on the road. You can sense the anticipation amongst the group of lepers. Maybe this was their chance. Maybe this was the one who could deliver them from their bondage and exile. They saw Jesus coming through their squinting gaze. They noticed the crowds. Even though they weren't supposed to, they left their colony and followed him at a distance. When they thought they were close enough, they called out in a collective, plaintive wail, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Their voices carried above the crowds, shrill and distinct. Jesus, Master, 
have mercy on us. Please, by God, by all things great and holy, have mercy on us, deliver us. Then it happens. Jesus turns at the sound of their cries. He sees them. He sees the rags hanging off their pain-deformed bodies. He notices the telltale sign of flaky white skin. His eyes meet their eyes. And in them he recognizes the pain and suffering. This is what God has called him to do. Bring salvation to God's people, particularly those who are outcasts. He speaks. Go and show yourself to the priests. Is that a dismissal? The lepers wonder. Is he rejecting our plea? But they need hope, any hope, any shred of chance to be normal again. They head off to find the local Levite priest. They know where he lives. Maybe this is the time. Then, as they're walking away, they begin to feel a change in their bodies. The constant burning subsides. Their skin begins to change color. They rip off some of their rags to see if it's true. Yes, yes, they are healed. They have been made new. It is the work of God. They dutifully follow orders off to find the priest. But one, one of the ten, turns back. His feet carry him to Jesus. When he's near, he lifts his gaze heavenward and lets forth a shout of praise to God. The crowds, scared of the leper, make space for him to come through. And he throws himself on the ground before Jesus. Thank you, Master. Thank you. The crowd recognizes this man. He's a Samaritan, a hated race. There's subtle whispers in the crowd. Then Jesus speaks, and all falls silent. We're not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Is none of them found to return and give praise to God? Except this foreigner? I have to confess, this scene has always baffled me. Why did the nine also not turn back? Why did they keep walking on to the priest without acknowledging Jesus and what he did for them? I don't get it. They just experienced an amazing, life-altering miracle. Their lives were changed. Why not say thank you? It's odd, even disturbing. Yet at the same time, it's also so reminiscent of our own situation, our own reluctance to give thanks when good things happen. So what do you think was the situation? What was going on through the minds of the nine who kept walking? Why did they not give thanks? Good things occurred. There's a chance they could have been ungrateful. Ah, God saved us as was expected. God's just being God. Something good happened and I deserved it. Why should I be thankful? I earned that healing. I am a self-made man. I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Give thanks? Psh, nonsense. I don't give thanks to anyone. That would be un-American. We're individuals. We do it on our own. Something tells me that probably wasn't going through their heads. 
More likely, the nine were distracted, busy with other things. I can see them chatting excitedly with one another. Look at what has happened. This is amazing. I can't wait to see my family again. How fast can we walk this path? Let's hurry up the pace. Now, which way is it to the priest? Jeremiah, you know the way, right? Hey, by the way, did you see that Samaritan? Where did he go? We all know what it's like to be distracted in life. We're not thankful because we're too busy. Did you see my calendar? You know, I really need to schedule more buffer time between appointments. I'm racing from one thing to the next. Sorry I'm late. Don't worry, it won't happen again. At least, not until the next time my schedule gets too busy. That thank you note? Yeah, it's on my to-do list. It keeps getting pushed down the list. Giving thanks? Sure, I'm thankful. Let me get, I'll get around to it tonight. Or tomorrow. Or the next day. I know I'll find time. But I have other things to take care of first. Sound familiar? There are other possibilities, however. Other reasons why the nine might not have turned back to give thanks to Jesus for the healing. Maybe they were afraid. These nine had lived their lives as outcasts. They had endured a horrible disease, something that shaped their every day and made their lives a living hell. You don't just have an unexpected miracle, something that changes everything you thought was your life and then not live in fear that it might return again. Disease came upon them unexpectedly. One day, you're happily with your family. Everything is normal. Life is good. Then the next day, it's all gone. So sudden. So earth-shaking. Now that it's better, you can't help but wonder, will it come back? When will the other shoe drop? Will you only have one day? Will something else shatter your dreams? It was too hard the first time. Will you deal with it again? You can see where the nine might not, might not turn back. They had to get to the priest. They had to confirm it. They had to know it would last. Hurry. Jesus, oh, Jesus is amazing, but he won't be there tomorrow if the leprosy returns. Best to savor every moment. And again, perhaps the whole ordeal was too painful. Some things, some experiences in life are so full of tragedy or struggle that even when good happens, it seems swallowed up by the overwhelmingly bad. To live day after day, year after year, trapped by leprosy, separated from everyone you know and love, would grind anyone down. You finally have relief, yes, but you lost those other years. You never saw your children grow. Maybe your loved ones passed away. Leprosy was hell but it already did its damage. The house and farm have been sold. Your spouse remarried. You're healed. But can you find a heart to praise? I'm sure you've had bad years. Years you would prefer to forget. That you wish never happened. The mere thought of them darkens your mood. I remember 2007... My father in the final stages of cancer. Me trying to get through the ordination process while looking for a job and getting one rejection after another, many explicitly because I was gay. I had far too many commitments at the end of school. 
That summer was my summer as a chaplain at Mass General Hospital. Lots of learning, and also facing so much suffering each day. Sometimes I had to go to the stairwell of that great hospital so I could cry, exhausted. I had no money after three years of graduate school. Even once I started my job, my initial salary was $25,000 per year, including housing. I should have been overjoyed to be back at Harvard, but I quickly discovered that all my friends had moved away. And that as a chaplain, I had no obvious colleagues. I had no guidance in my job, no training working as a college chaplain. I found a place to live with two complete strangers. I should have been overjoyed when I got ordained that December, full of thanks. But as my father, his suit hanging off his skeletal frame, with his gaunt, almost gray face, straining to put the red stole over my shoulders, it was hard to cheer and praise God. Not because I wasn't thankful. I was. Sometimes it's hard to feel it. Sometimes gratitude comes more easily than at other times. I think about those nine. Those nine lepers who didn't turn back. Get it. Really do. Then I remember the one who did return. The text has this remarkable line. After Jesus expresses his dismay that only one returned to give thanks, he says to the Samaritan before him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. King James Version translated, translates it as, Your faith, thy faith, has made thee whole. And the leper had already been cleansed, as had the others who did not return. Jesus had cleansed them. But there was something in returning, giving thanks, that made this one well, made him whole. One of the great gifts of being a person of faith is the belief in God. Belief in God can take many forms, but nearly all of them have one thing in common. Faith in God includes the acknowledgement that you are not in control. Events befall you. Things happen. Good things and bad things. Those events, both good and bad, are so often out of your control. But a belief in God affirms that there's something else in play. For some, it means that God dictates everything. God makes all things happen. But for me, it means that God is present. God is there amidst the collection of atoms that make up the universe, so that even in the good or in the bad, there is the enduring presence of a loving God. Those everlasting arms holding you up. Giving thanks in a religious context is a way to acknowledge that reality. It's human nature to give thanks when things go well. When you're happy, it's easy to give thanks. But maybe this Thanksgiving, it's not where you are. Maybe you're like one of the nine lepers who didn't turn back. Things have been rough. It has been a struggle. You don't feel happy. Maybe there's stresses in your family that make, that make this Thanksgiving particularly difficult. Perhaps you're the one who has to do all the cooking and cleaning and you can't wait for Thanksgiving to be over. Maybe you're dreading the travel nightmare. Perhaps Thanksgiving only reminds you of the people who are not at your table because they're gone. 
I don't think we have to feign happiness on this holiday. We don't have to pretend that all is well and joyful if it's not. But I think the lesson of the one who returned to Jesus is that if you want to feel wholeness, healing, acknowledging God, giving thanks for God's presence, for God's spirit, for God's love, is the way to do it. Thy faith hath made thee whole. From the depths of my heart, I wish all of you a joyous Thanksgiving holiday. Relish every morsel of the unhealthy delight that goes in your mouth. Stuff your face and don't regret it. Be that congregationalist around the table and mention the pilgrims. Oh, and in addition to the turkey, remember the one leper who returned and the gift of wholeness that he received. May that sense of wholeness, of shalom, be with you this week. Hear ye, ye hath received, now freely give. Give of thine substance and present thyself 